Welcome to Points of Change Live. My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm here today to speak to uh, someone who I've befriended on, on social media networks. He is a Toastmaster, he is a banker, he's an author, he is a professional speaker, and to, talks regularly about uh, innovation and, and other things besides. He's also a, a former European Championship in the uh, in public speaking evaluation. So that's definitely something we want to get onto. Uh, his name is Savisachi Gupta, uh, Sengupta, and we are going to be speaking to him very shortly. He's very kindly said that I can call him Savi. So <laughs> we'll be speaking to Savi just after the title. See you in a moment. Welcome to Points of Change, the show where week by week we chat with coaches, mentors, change makers, visionaries, experts, and all sorts of people with incredible life transformation stories about how they transform their lives, what have been their critical points of change, and how are they now helping others to create transformation in their own lives. Hope you enjoy the show. Make sure you like and subscribe. Well, Sari, welcome to Points of Change. It's really great to be speaking to you. Thank you so much, Johnny. Thank you for that glorious introduction. I was feeling very shy and humble, but thank you so much. It was really nice and kind. I, of I, I, prob I probably didn't even do you justice, really, I think, for, for everything that you uh, you were doing. But uh, one of the things we're, we're going to be talking about is is your book. But before we get to that, we, we connected because we're both part of the Toastmasters organization. Yes. And so that's how we got connected with each other. Uh, and you know, many of the wonderful people I've connected with over the last several years have been through Toastmasters. And I find it great, not just for practicing the public speaking and developing you, but also for the amazing network that exists worldwide through through the Toastmasters organization. How, how did you come into Toastmasters and what's been your experience of that organization? I have been with Toastmasters now for 10 years, over 10 years. I started in 2010 in Utrecht. Um, it's a city in the Netherlands. So what happened is I moved here in the Netherlands to, to study and uh, 2010 was a bizarre year because it was very cold winter, snow and everything. I was very depressed even I didn't know I was so attached to the sun you know coming from a tropical country uh, from India it was like it was pretty depressing and at some point my brother told me like you know you like speaking you like debating I've done debates and stuff in my college days why don't you check this thing out Toastmasters it's a club where people talk and I'm like okay what does that that's gonna be weird and strange but on a uh, and on Christmas 2010, I first time went uh, to Toastmaster and I remember it was a snowed in, everything was closed. There were only few members who actually showed up like seven or eight and they were not even sure that it's going to work out. And uh, they just got me in and they were like, uh, um, I still remember my first tabletop question that was asked to me that evening. Uh, when was the last time you did something for the first time? And my answer was speaking in front of an unknown audience. And mm. I did not know that it will definitely be not the last time I'm going to do that. And from then on, I've been doing that for a long, long time. Great. Those That's a great table topic question. I love that. I'm going to remember that one. Those Fantastic. Phenomenal experience. I think I have to say it's one of my most life-changing experience as an expat. It has been that uh, community that gave me confidence, friends, um, uh, you know, new ideas to do things. And of course, some success, you know, winning awards and stuff. Um, 
um, people after 10 years not only uh, you know have, have, know me as a speaker but also a great dancer at district conferences so that's uh-huh. okay <laughs> that's good to know that's good to know so you, 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 you we won't get you to dance on the podcast it, it, it won't help for the people who are just listening as well. <laughs> we, we can just tell them you're dancing and they can imagine it so so look that, that's fantastic you, you clearly have a lot of fun in this organization as well and it's it's been a big part of your own development and growth too. Did the, did your background in debating? Do you feel that that prepared you for public speaking in some ways? I think it's. It, it, I, I initially thought it did. Uh, it did give me the initial confidence where I was not uh, uncomfortable to go and speak, especially like when it comes to table topics. This is off the cuff. You know, you really get a topic and you have to just shout. But the first time I did a prepared speech, I could feel it was so different because it was seven minute speech, even if it was an icebreaker talking about myself to stand and talk and ex- people are expecting you to move a little. I mean, of course, not the first speech, but I've seen people do that. And I thought that will be so sure. easy to move around, to look people in the eyes, to make powerful pauses. Debate is really like go crazy, bam, bam, bam. You know, you sometimes you're standing, sometimes you're sitting. And, uh, you know, you just have to argue. You have to also sometimes even scream. Um, it did, I, if I'm honest, it did give me the initial confidence, but public speaking is much different, mm. uh, much tougher because you have like seven minutes. And the moment you put some preparation, you also put some expectation. So you prepare a speech. You want it to, you, you have it in your head how you want it to go. And then you come to the room and you are like seven people and, you know, um, you're fighting against your fears. And I think that's fighting against your fears is tougher than fighting against any opponent. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I find fascinating about debating, I know I just touched on this before we move into more things, but it, I think debating requires a degree of being able to understand logical fallacies and to identify them in other people and to to be able to, you have to really listen to what's being said. And, mm-hmm. and, and but you are listening with the intention to, to counter and to you know, dig deeper and to present an, a, a, maybe an opposing side. So perhaps it's a bit of a different way of listening and interacting than certainly public speaking ends up being. But do you find that at least some of that has pre- prepared you in some ways for the things that you talk about or how you investigate um, topics that you're going to present on? I think uh, more than debates, we had a uh, when we were in college, we were preparing for master's studies, MBAs and stuff in India. And we had this thing for which we prepared called a group discussion. Group discussion is a group of say 10 or 15 people who have made it from the written exam to the next level. And out of those 15, say two will be called to the next round. And you are just thrown a topic like, uh, let's say, I don't know, the winter in Europe or the vaccination policy, or it could be any anything under the sun, you know, or it could be as abstract as uh, why did the chicken cross the road, something like that. And you have five minutes, the group has five minutes and you start talking in that you have to really make sense. You have to uh, stand out. You have to also at times shut people off, not in a rude way that you come across very aggressive. So they check so many things that, and there are two people who are sitting up somewhere and taking notes and only two will go forward. So you can imagine we start doing that while all sitting in a circle and towards the end of those five minutes, we are all standing and trying to like, you know, um, almost beat each other up because, you know, your really life depends on this thing. So uh, in in that way, I think that was one of the preparation where you have to read about everything. You have to also 
uh, all, uh, one of the tricks we were told is that bring your personal story. When you don't know anything, like they ask me, um, what do I think about the, uh, the, the the coal is running out in this world? I don't have much knowledge. Bring your personal anecdote, how you saw your grandmother cooking with coal uh, when she was, uh, when you visited her. Bring your personal story to get that edge, you know, even if you have no idea on that topic. So that was one of the things that really I learned. And I think Toastmaster is also a platform that encourages you to bring personal stories. And uh, so it, it, it was quite a bridge to like you give any topic, you can bring a personal angle to it. Mm. How, how has public speaking been relevant to your professional career? Uh, I think public speaking is one thing. And of course, Toastmasters is I think we both have been very, very relevant to me. Uh, public speaking definitely gave me the confidence that I am making sense when I'm talking and I, people are going to listen to what I'm going to say. So that is a huge, huge confidence because sometimes um, in, in organizations and I've worked for really, really large banks over the last uh, 13, 12, 13 years of my career where people are uh, sometimes feel intimidated by big titles. If you're talking to a vice president or a director or a managing director and sometimes you have to negotiate with with uh, uh, clients and you know uh, people from out uh, who are extremely street smart, to really keep keep your composure and make and and have that belief that whatever I'm saying is making sense and people are going to listen because I know how to structure it, I know how to you know get reaction out of people. I think that was public speaking that taught me. Um, I didn't, I wasn't a confident person, and um, and Europe was initially very intimidating from me coming from uh, India where I was like uh, quite awestruck with everything that was going here. Um, public speaking was definitely that uh, tool, if not a weapon, that gave me that uh, confidence to um, stand up, speak up, and often even shut up. That's great. I mean, it's good, good to hear that. I think it's, uh, pers personally, I, I think public speaking is a very powerful personal development tool and professional development tool and uh, really sets you up for, uh, you know, whilst uh, I, I was rallying on, on one of my shows yesterday about it being called a soft skill because I, I think, yeah. you know, uh, soft skills it, it give the impression of that it's about how you communicate and how you show up in, in a professional situation. Um, so, you know, whilst it is that, it is part of your communication, um, it's so much more than that. It's, it's really much more of a critical skill Absolutely. and soft, soft skill really underplays it as being like well it's a nice to have it's not an yeah. essential thing and no, well, actually no it is it's really essential especially now where we're all, we're all having to be on zoom meetings all the time and things like that it's like we we all have to do this now it's even harder and i think one of the um another thing public speaking definitely helps you is understanding the person you're talking to now there are things that we learn in public speaking especially like body language you can yeah. really gauge by looking at the person who's sitting in front of you and their body language how much involved they are how much are they really listening are they really focused and you can go up and down in your content based on how you are uh, getting the you know the feedback in terms of just nonverbal communication Right. I think that is amazing. I mean, the whole, the whole nonverbal communication is an ocean and public speaking really, uh, if you know public speaking well enough, you know the basics of it, you know, how the person is sitting or standing or giving you eye contact or, um, you know, what they're doing with their hands when you're speaking gives you a certain degree of idea of what a person may or may not be doing while you're speaking. And I think that's an important thing. It's a, it, it, it really um 
helps in meetings especially in zoom because now you are you know you cannot see everybody you can only see how they're nodding or they are looking at the screen or not or if yeah. you see eyes are moving like this then you're definitely sure they're multitasking they're looking at something on the screen <laughs> yeah exactly that uh, it's interesting when, when I, I i've been doing online coaching and speaking for for years and uh uh, and I was use, initially started off doing that using things like GoToWebinar, which I know it's still around. I, I know maybe a lot less people use that now. More people are doing Zoom and, and other things where where you have more video, although I think perhaps they have video interaction now where they didn't before. But I was very used to presenting and speaking, coaching with large groups of people without being able to see them and without them being able to see me as well. So it was absolutely essential that everything had to be uh, vocal. And, and GoToWeb and I used to be able to tell you when people were doing things <laughs> other than other than paying attention. And now, due to privacy restrictions, they're not allowed to tell you when people aren't being attentive. But you do have to make that assumption, I think, online, that there, there's so many things to distract us, there's so many temptations. Assume that people are distracted. It is, it is extremely, I think, definitely coming back to Toastmasters, I think I, I think uh, the whole Toastmaster community last year acted so fast with the whole Zoom world. And I mm -hmm. think it was a, quite a, uh, like I think many people still struggle with Zoom, how to use it or, or Teams, how to use it, how to, uh, what to, you know, how much screen you should keep, um, you know, or you're too close or too far. At Toastmasters, we kind of learned it from like looking at each other within a month. We were quite an expert on 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 how to use uh, virtual uh, backgrounds, how to you know um, uh, make good online presentations. I think yeah. that's a big success there. That um, that helped us at our work because now that you are uh, in your work giving presentation, you really know the do's and don'ts. That because you've done it so many times and you've seen people do it, you know, so. Yeah. Um, I know, of course, meeting in person is the most uh, utmost thing we all want to do that, but desperate times, desperate measures. <laughs> yeah, and it even got me as far as figuring out how to turn myself into a speaking potato or a, a speaking puppy or kitten or something like that on, on the... Uh, on Zoom calls, it's like that. That's quite amazing. Some of the technology that's around at the moment. Uh, mostly, <laughs> mostly, I think we've seen that from people doing it accidentally. Like uh, some weeks back, there was that lawyer guy who uh, accidentally turned himself into a kitten on his <laughs> on his Zoom call with uh, with a judge and, and a, on a professional call, which is frankly hilarious. Um, but uh, but yeah, so we hear about when people when it goes wrong. But uh, those are fun things to play with as a presenter and a speaker, uh, and great engagement tools potentially yeah. when when used in the right. Yeah in the right kind of way and that's what it's all about right absolutely so do you you've gone a bit further than just public speaking you you've written a book and uh you've written a book about really um making your challenges your adversity work for you and you've called it what's your plan b T tell us a bit about that so um 2018 i went on a sabbatical end of 2018 for for three months to just you know rejuvenate and relax and just before leaving i spoke to a, a, i just accidentally bumped into a lady uh she was um in her mid 50s i would say and uh she was pretty uh sad and we started talking and she told me she and her husband worked for a company for 30 years and then she, he lost his job. And now he's not old enough to go on pension and not young enough to find something. And they don't know what to do. And um, the person I am, I was trying to bounce off ideas like, can he like teach? 
be, become a consultant and he tried this and um, none of the idea were materializing turns out he has not even updated his cv for the last 30 years has hates public speaking um, one more thing enabler public speaking um and 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 right now is is extremely demoralized because he's sitting at home for a year which is not fun for anybody um and that really got me thinking and um i'm the kind of person who likes to help um whenever i hear a problem i'm not the one who's going to give shoulder i'm like let's work towards a solution but clearly i didn't have a solution for her not that she was asking for it but i just thought like maybe there will be many more people who have gone through this and i myself have seen it i mean my first job in india was at uh, the Le- was at lehman brothers in a big investment okay. we joined i was 21 we had rosy dreams fly over the world uh, become the new wolves of wall street and uh, work <laughs> hard and everything right and within a year it uh, the all the dreams shattered and uh, the day lehman got bankrupt i still remember and i'm quoting from my books from my book when i say that people with big bonuses big egos and big house were re- reduced to crying they were like i just bought my house how am i going to pay my mortgage everybody was um, demoralized and we were like uh, within the next two weeks we were still had to come to office so we were uh, sending resumes to every recruiter left right center like i i still remember one person what he did he got an excel sheet with all the recruiters possible on god's green earth and bcc'd everybody and sent his cv and guess how many responses he got none <laughs> exactly um, yeah. and people who went to competitors for job interviews were said like okay 60% pay cut then only we will have a talk with you and and right. people were depressed demoralized and and extremely vulnerable and it it that, that conversation i had in 2018 was really um deja vu for me that wow this really happened to me this can happen again and let me exploit this because people uh, when they are on the brink of this kind of professional adversity uh feel vulnerable people are need help and i would like to uh, be of help so the when i started my sabbatical this was the thought in my mind and i worked on it um i initially i thought i i know enough to write a book but then as i wrote like 10 pages i realized okay i need help uh, so i interviewed 25 people from different sectors different industries different uh, levels entrepreneurs ceos politicians sportsmen who were very kind and gracious to give me their stories some were success stories people who could turn adversity into benefit some who couldn't and learned a valuable lesson and shared that and together i made this book so that um people with with who are facing professional adversity or are feeling stuck or want to make a change they can uh, use this and benefit from it yeah well, i mean what an important time for a book like that to be to be around when uh... when so many people are, have been facing um fi- financial and work uncertainty or either lost their jobs or not being able to continue working or furloughed or whatever else um in during this time a lot of people are reevaluating yeah. and and wondering what next what do they do next um now there i know there are people out there who teach that you shouldn't even have a plan b um because you know it takes your mind off plan a so what what's your take on that I think it really de- de- depends on how you define plan b how i define plan b is uh, to a have a uh, first so I, okay let me start with the story i had the book and the book say your uh, best friend is getting married in spain and you are the ceremony master um and you have to go there 
and you reach the airport and the plane is cancelled, what will you do? Will you just give up or you will look for options? Now, I need, let me fly to Paris and from there, let me go there. Or let me fly to Madrid and then take a train. Let me fly to Lisbon and then take a bus from there. Would you look for these options or not? Would you? Me, right. I would, yeah. Exactly. And that's plan B. So what I mean is have a master plan, that a master plan that is uh, tailor-made for you, that is your goal, your ambition, your drive, what you want to be. And it can be anything from becoming the CEO of a company to having X amount of money in your bank account or to become the most successful podcast channel in, in Belgium. Anything can be your master plan. Anything can happen. Exactly. But to reach that master plan, you need short-term goals. You need short goals that will... Um, enable you to reach there. But these goals will be challenged because the world is changing, you are changing, people around you are changing, everything is changing. So those short-term plans will, will not always uh, uh, be successful. So you need a plan B for these plans so that yeah. you can ultimately reach your master plan. So uh, for everybody who says don't have a plan B, I would ask them to a read my book and b ask them the definition of a plan b plan mm -hmm. b does not mean taking the focus away from your master plan your master plan should still remain there it's just that you change the path to reach that master plan okay now i i do think that it's a good idea to always be flexible in, in going forward anyway like um i'm one of those people who I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the way most people teach goal setting i think uh, goal setting is like give yourself a direction to go in but mm -hmm. focus more on who you have to become in order to achieve that because there's more than one way to make that happen and there's more than one way to achieve the kinds of things that you want and sometimes being so focused on one particular goal um makes you rigid on on anything that doesn't quite fit in with what you've envisioned on being on your path or track yep. to that which i think is potentially more damaging than beneficial would, would you would you have some thoughts on that i i think definitely i think one of the things is we we are sometimes so attached to the work we do and uh, that we cannot think beyond that we think this is it if this fails our life crashes and that's not true life is like you know you you will find different ways of working and i think um, i've seen a lot of colleagues friends who love their work and they have loved it and uh, work also brings uh, success at work also brings vanity it also brings pride and it's so difficult to let go of those things when you are thinking of the next option right. um, one of the thing i always advise is be like that a leaf that floats in the water half of it is completely submerged in water and wet and half of it is completely dry if the hole is dry then it's not floating and if the whole of it is wet then it's drowning and uh, and that is the level of attachment and detachment we need we should have from our work from the pride that our work gives us from the 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 perks that we get from our work and that's only when we can we'll be able to see out of the box because sometimes you know um in in in, in my book i mentioned all the crisis that can affect you sometimes it's not you you know you are working fine and then covid happened you're working for a tourism company you are the number one employee there you're like you know your records and performance is off the chart and then COVID happens yeah. and, and everything uh, thanks so 
it's very important to have that sense of detachment. And it does not mean that you should not focus and do well what, at what you're doing. When you're doing your work, do it with 100%, but also keep your eyes and ears open and that and level of detachment, not from the commitment of work, but level, level of detachment from the outcomes of the work and the perks and the pride and the vanity that comes from it. Yeah, I think you put that really well. And uh, in, interestingly enough, it's something I, I, I notice come up in a, in a lot of the books that I read. And even just recently, like, I've been listening to a, a podcast this week from uh, from a guy who's born in the UK called Darren Brown. He's like a famous mentalist, kind of like a, a mind magician kind of thing. And um, in that, that's very much about the sort of psychological tricks, the tricks our brain plays on us or the, the things that we are susceptible to. And one of the things that come up from that, which I've come across before, is this idea, as you mentioned, that your self-image, your your status that you get to in a profession can can end up being as much of a hindrance as a as a benefit to you because it it almost imprisons you when you have to be kind of perfect. When you're at a certain level, you're expected to be able to do everything excellently well. This is how everyone identifies you. And you know, our brains like to uh, like things to be simple. And yes. so when somebody shows up and they're, they're doing something different to that or they're changing direction, uh, we tend to, we don't always respond well to that. We And we often will criticize people for, for doing these things as well. But for us on a personal level, uh, we give ourselves a lot of freedom when we're not overly attached to to the outcomes, to the identity of like we get to this level. I've seen this um, in in the martial arts world, uh, in in the Bujinkan Ninjutsu, which is the martial arts that that I've I've been in for the, the last however many years. And um, that all the high level teachers, all the all the masters, always say that they're they're just learning as well. Mm. They're, they're yeah. students. They're students still. It's a very humble attitude, but it is this thing of well, that allows it allows us to still make mistakes. It allows us to be like, okay, well, I can change things as well. I can still adapt. I'm not locked into this. I'm the master. Everything I say is right, and everything I do is right. Uh, that that instantly you can fall off from, and, and I get that's some some of what you're saying there. Yeah, I think I think th those those things can get snatched uh, in me uh, without uh, uh, any notice, and and. What it can do is it gives resentment. I um, I mentioned a story where um, I was working in Singapore for a couple of months to migrate a big process from Singapore to India, and um, some of the it meant for some colleagues there who were who are supposed to train us that they will lose their job because you know outsourcing and everything. Um, some were uh, understanding of it and and cooperated, and there were particularly one person who was extremely resentful who could not hide his emotions and even said things like sweared on, on at us and things said pretty uh, nasty things, you know, which in the end costed him his job. I mean, uh, and, and I think the thing what for him is he was so attached. Like he even said, like, we created this process and you're taking it away from us. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but this is not my decision to make, you know, if, if not me, someone else will do it. I mean, and the, the the level of attachment he had to to that was um, actually um, uh, you know counterproductive, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating area. I want to ask you. I mean, you you said you interviewed a number of people about uh, people who had uh, achieved success, make it made adversity work for them, and people who hadn't been able to do that. 
what did you notice? Were there, were there differences? Was, was it a mindset difference or was it a more of a situational difference? Did it really depend on what was going on? What kind of things did you pick up from those conversations? I think, uh, most of the time it was uh, people who did not, uh, um, who faced the adversity versus who didn't, um, were that they did not see it coming. I think that is the number one thing. Um, people did not recognize that this is a crisis. Like one of the stories that I have in the book is of a CEO who started his company and made profits, large profit for the first three years and was really uh, proud. Of course, he should be and was, uh, uh, you know, thought this will go. And the fourth year when the company was starting to make loss, he just did not see the red flags. And he was like, we're going to turn around. We're going to make a turnaround. And he told me that um, uh, optimism and denial are very thin lines. And uh, you don't know from when you stop being an optimist and you're actually living in denial. And that's what uh, he said happened to him, that he was living in denial. And when in the fourth year, he the company took a nosedive, which, almost, which kind of meant bankruptcy. I think it did mean bankruptcy. Um, he just could not accept it because he did not see it coming. He did not think this is going to, this is, can happen to him. And this is um, uh, like after three years of success, there was no uh, reason or no, no sloppiness from his side that could result into this failure. And sometimes it's not your work. I mean, you know, it's not that you are being sloppy. Sometimes things change, the world changes. Right. It's good to recognize and be a realist. I think most of the time, people who have not been able to make that transition is because they did not see it coming. Yeah, it's interesting. These these are like the cognitive biases that run in our lives all, all the time. And, and when you get into those kinds of positions and ways of thinking, you may find that you are, are less open to those people who are sort of holding their hand up and kind of saying, uh, things aren't looking so good. And uh, you know, we, we actually need to pay attention to this. Uh, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Look how successful we've been for the last several years. You know, uh, and, um, I, I worked in the airline industry for, for around 12 years. And uh, one of the things we had to do every year was this, uh, what they call, they called it CRM. The CRM for them is like crew resource management. And really what that was about was um, communication communication between uh, pilots and, and captains especially and and the crew of the of, of the plane because uh, they've had that there have been um, airline investigations to accidents to catastrophes where it has been shown that the either the co-pilot or someone in the crew was highlighting something to the captain and it was ignored or dismissed yeah. um, because they these have much more of this like, like a lot of people associate more with surgeons perhaps as well this kind of god complex almost like this is my this is my zone this is what i say goes and uh, and so they don't really want to listen to someone's like well you're not a trained pilot so i'm not even gonna listen the wings fallen off no it's fine Look, my, my monitors are all fine <laughs> you know it's like um things things like that that um to open people up to this idea that you must listen to the communication and not have the feeling that they can't come and tell you things but also be in that position where you listen and and really listen and you take on board even if you, even if it's the sort of say okay here's why that's not the case or uh let's take a look at that we should investigate that further because we close ourselves off to things. Uh, it's, it's a and, fascinating and, and the thing is, when you make these provisions, when you take these things into consideration, it will cause discomfort. It will take away your time, energy to 
you know create that plan b or create that backup planning um and it, it, it is a bit like insurance you know you have to pay a premium which hurts your pocket but it will protect you when things go down and um especially in events like um like a black swan when that that suddenly happens and it just like leaves devastating effect like what happened with the pandemic i mean i i now see so many restaurants in my neighborhood that um they were really my favorites that refused to move to uh, home delivery you know they were like nah we believe in um you know the experience people going to come here and, and eat here and you know it, it's all about the experience and everything which i which is great i think that's that's amazing but uh, we have in amsterdam our restaurants now shut down for like over six almost six months now and um if, if they haven't moved to the home delivery and uh, the, 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 the that mode, then like the, it's 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 a question of not survival to do that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Being a, again, it's that flexibility thing and not being too attached to to one particular thing. Adapt to your situation, especially when you don't know how long it's going to go on. People who maybe tune into some of my stuff content regularly will know that I'm a big fan of Stoic philosophy and that I, I love uh, reading about Stoic philosophy and talking to experts in Stoicism, such as uh, uh, Donald Robertson, who has been a guest on my show before. And uh, you know, I got very, very gratefully, I was schooled in Stoicism on that particular episode, which was a real joy. Uh, but one of the things I love about Stoic philosophy is, is it does talk about this kind of mental preparation, mm -hmm. being prepared to be resilient, like at least considering that don't assume that everything's just going to keep going well forever. You know it's not. It's like not that it's all going to go to rubbish and, and, and be horrible forever either. Um, everything is temporary. And yes. that's what we sometimes lose sight of and that's where we end up being unprepared um, yeah. but realistically anything could happen and, and the um the stoics would practice this thing uh it's almost like a negative visualization if you like imagining things that you've got right now um being gone from your life like how do you manage it how do you go through with it and get yourself out of this sort of uh when things do go wrong that you don't end up catastrophizing it you kind of feel a bit prepared that you can be resilient in the situation and get through it because most of us when we look back on situations like that we've had in our lives we've got through it if we, we had been less worried about it we would have got maybe got through it a bit more a bit more easily right? uh, one of the things i mentioned in my book is this uh the level of preparation when you do have a plan b and i, I have done it with a nice drawing in the book that when you have a plan b um then when crisis happens you you know you you are preparing 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 when crisis happens you just um you don't do anything because you know we just wait you wait the storm you see what it is how it's what's the impact whereas people without a plan b will not do anything anything and when there is a crisis they just go panic and they just want to just like react and like i told you that email with bccing all the recruiters I mean, I got a, uh, I named that uh, zone, that zone of overreaction among people. I call it the, the toilet paper zone uh, from, <laughs> from the classic COVID period where um, suddenly there was this whole panic about toilet paper. And that is nothing but lack of preparation. I mean, there is no logical reasoning to hold toilet papers. But <laughs> I can still understand with face mask and sanitizer, but toilet papers make no sense whatsoever. Yeah. But, Still, people were doing it, and that's that's what happened when people are caught off guard from a crisis, and it suddenly hits. 
and and yeah it 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 is just the level of not being prepared yeah i definitely think some people thought there was going to be a huge black market in toilet paper and that we're going to cash in on that uh, uh, i don't think that's really happened they're going to be getting getting through that still for years to come possibly i, I was shocked when i saw videos of people fighting at shopping malls so <laughs> you're like it's a toilet paper they were like <laughs> howling and fighting like their life depends on it yeah I, I yeah looking back on that i think one of the one of the things that really triggered that was the media coverage as well because then other people are like thinking all oh, right toilet paper yeah let's run out and grab toilet paper because everyone else is doing it it's like yeah. i don't think the media coverage coverage really helped in those sorts I, of times um uh, it, it it's 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 crazy and and i think uh even here in the supermarkets everybody ran out of toilet papers and yeah me too it, it, it's funny to imagine like i i just if, if i could get hold of those people that i saw on the videos like uh, crying over begging please let me take the toilet papers and stuff i really want to go back and ask them like seriously one year later what do you think about it are you still <laughs> <laughs> but you know our, our minds have a miraculous ability to rationalize things we will we'll even rationalize our most irrational behaviors given the opportunity to do so because none of us like to think of ourselves as being irrational so we will you know we'll explain it away we'll find a way to do that that makes sense i'm curious to hear that explanation i think that will uh, because it's it's also good to know that because then you also get the idea of the level of panic and fear that can that can happen i mean it, it's um when i said i want to talk not for fun but also gen genuinely be understanding of the yeah. fear that um or, or the reason that triggers such such an action and and um i i suspect you would have needed to ask them at the time because now they've rationalized it now you know the memories have been changed on it and the thoughts and feelings have been changed on it to to make it make more sense for them i i that's what that would be my suspicion that you went maybe won't get the full picture. and they're willing to share their stories i will bring one of them <laughs> could be that could be a whole book the toilet paper panic that could be a that could be your next book <laughs> So let me ask you. I mean, people, anyone who's watching or listening in, um, who's thinking, or oh, how do I go about preparing myself for a Plan B? Do you have any particular points of advice that they could start thinking about that? I think um, in the book I mentioned four Plan Bs that take care of. First is um, how to, uh, you know. So let's say I did a market research to find out what are the biggest fears people have when when it comes to losing their job. The first one is I don't have enough money. second is i don't have the right skills to find a new position i don't know enough people who can help me or this i don't know what i want to do next um let me tell let me in my opinion which i think is a low hanging fruit and you can go for is the doubt that i don't know enough people we all know enough people we know people all around us but the question is have you put enough effort to be connected to uh, to reach out to them if you haven't i think that start there reach out to your network ask them how they are what they are doing and exchange ideas not with the myopic intention of finding a job or or a business just to catch up i mean build that trust build that relationship and that's where you can um, and slowly it will bear the fruit um in 2017 i gave a tedx talk on art of networking where i always mentioned this that networking is like a plant you have to planted you have to give water you have to give it sunlight and then it will bear its fruit it will bear its fruit but it takes time if you want i met somebody today and tomorrow they're going to offer me a job it doesn't work that way that's yeah. not the cookie crumbles you need to have patience so 
all most of the plan b's can be uh, are not always time sensitive like you can acquire skill i mean of course some skills take longer than the other but you can do degree certification learn things you can also look for different streams of income uh, in a sh rather shorter notice but networking is something that can take years before you are able to um, bear the fruit so yeah. i think start today reach out to the colleagues that you haven't spoken for years that once were like almost friends that you worked in the same team and you had a great relationship but you haven't been in touch for months and years reach out to them talk to them ask how they're doing ask what's their situation like be genuine in in your concerns be genuine in your um, questions and and why I, I push on this particular one because it takes time if you start today then in, in the longer run, that person will be someone who can give you ideas, inspiration, and even help. But start today. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's really sound advice because uh, I know some people sort of do do this thing of like desperately reaching out or networking when they need something. But you know, there are principles that apply just as much to networking as to dating. Like if you show up and you're desperate, um, you know, there's a, there's a certain stink to it that will, people people will run away and will won't want to go near you. People don't want to be around desperation. It's a very um, repulsing uh, energy and emotion to be in that people will move away from. And, and yeah, and don't want to help. Whereas, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite books, and I talk about it quite often, is uh, by Dr. Richard Wiseman. It's called The Luck Factor. I don't know if you've ever read it, but uh, he like demystifies luck as being this um, more of a scientific thing that you, luck really luck or lack of um, depends on your belief in it. And if you believe you're a lucky person, you're more likely to act in, in those sorts of ways. And there were certain behaviors that lucky people, people who believe they're lucky do. One of those is building and nurturing their network. Mm -hmm. so that is something that you know, lucky people do. I fully agree. And I think uh, like also in my book, I mentioned like on not just how to reach out when the things are nice, but when uh, things are falling apart, you lose your job or something happens or you want to change your job, how to reach out and not to be begging or, or desperate, as you said, and still believe that you are like, if this person hires you or is, is, is willing to give you an opportunity, they are doing a favor, but it's not one way street because you as a candidate have credibility, have, um, um, you know, strengths that you're bringing to the table. So it is a win-win for both parties. So yeah. to have that faith when you're doing it, and it definitely comes from, um, um, I don't want to use the word luck, but uh, definitely due to uh, abundance of confidence. Um, yeah. And luck is definitely a factor, I think. Um, I personally believe success is a product and not a sum of three things, your um, hard work, your merit and luck. If either of them is zero, then you're doomed. Merit is something I, I personally believe we all have equal, it's how much we use it. Luck is unpredictable and it is the hard work where we can tweak it. Um, and luck can backfire once twice but not always sometimes luck will really support you and that day if you put your hard work um sky's the limit for you i, I love that and uh, and I, I appreciate that i, I definitely recommend uh for yourself as well, check, check out the luck factor because it's uh, uh, it really goes into just how much how much the belief in your own luckiness or unluckiness is 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 vital to success and to having that experience in your life as well. Um, yeah. 
but uh, but it's really good. But I like your book, and I definitely think people should be checking this out because this is uh, this is a really critical thing to have in our lives, especially in this age where we need to be a bit more prepared, resilient, and, and able to uh, approach things without the desperation, without the neediness, and to um, be able to rationally. Um, Make, rely on our network and and also be there for them as well. So yeah. really powerful stuff. One of the things I want to make sure we do get to today, I, I will make sure there's a link for for your book in the show notes for people as well to go and check that out. Um, is your evaluations, uh, is your skills and evaluations. So uh, I know you're, you're going to go, come and talk to my Toastmasters club in a few weeks time. We'll get that, uh, we'll do a bit more organization on that as well um, about evaluations. But tell, tell me a bit about uh, about your experience as an evaluator of public speaking. I think it's fantastic. It's one of the most amazing thing to do in Toastmasters because uh, you get this, you, I, I love it because you have five minutes uh, to write up an evaluation and you can be as creative as you want. Um, and I think it, that that's what I love about uh, Toastmasters evaluation, that you have the whole carte blanche to uh, put your creativity. I have learned um, many skills over the years. One of them is um, to not make it too much about myself, make it about the speaker and also to um, like, um, you know, pinpoint um, like, um, also focus on the content, not just on the delivery, because I think a lot of evaluators that I see today, uh, Toastmasters focus a lot on the delivery. It's, it's a delivery is a low hanging fruit. Content is a tough one. And you have to be very, very observant to uh, make comments on the content. Um, I, I, I think uh, um, just before my 2015 Toastmasters evaluation in Europe uh, at Porto, I had a uh, evening meeting with one of my uh, friend who's an also an amazing evaluator, uh, Sangrita, Sangrita Matra. She um, she really was really like hammering, like she was like made me do evaluation of the same speech multiple times, only just on the content, not just on the delivery and stuff. It really helps. And over the years, it, it's something that has stayed with me, and I've, I love doing it. And it's also some, like I said, at Toastmasters, you learn so much that you can use in your life and in your work that uh, you can um, like give evaluation and feedback to your bosses, to colleagues, and in a palatable, in a palpable way that does not feel offensive, and yet you are conveying the, the critical points, the points of improvement. And I think that's something Toastmasters has has taught me, yeah. and. Um, that's something I've learned from Toastmaster evaluations. Well, you, you've beaten me to my follow-up question there, which is where where it's transferred into your into your own life outside of that as well. Uh, I think it's one of the things that uh, sometimes puts people off Toastmasters that uh, when they do a prepared speech, they know they're going to get some feedback on it, and we don't always like that feedback. We, you know, sometimes it's things that maybe your maybe your talk wasn't as good or as perfect as you thought it was. And uh, that's a nice feedback to give. I think then the problem is not with the person who's hesitant to get the feedback. It's more the problem with the person who's giving the feedback. Sure. Is 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 a is a is a nice way to see that here is the thing. If I do think, and I there there are times when I think a speaker is not doing a good job, but that speaker does not need like detailed points, like, you know, move your hand at this word or pause here. That speaker needs confidence. That speaker yeah. needs a push. That needs, that speaker needs a support. And that's what I'm going to give to him or her. I'm going to tell them, listen, great try, good attempt. You know, what I like is this confidence that, that what, and, and also highlight what they did well. And sure. then present a few things they can do well. 
So if somebody is in need of confidence and doing it something for the first or second time, going berserk or going butchering that person on the content and making comments like it was not up to the mark or um, is 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 really um, unfair. I think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm referring perhaps more to people's fear about that they feel that they're going to be criticized in their feedback. And I don't think that really, I've not come across that in Toastmasters really. Um, but sometimes we feel even somebody commenting on our content or our delivery is critical. And, and to a degree it is, but it's not personal. And, and that's something you have to get good at being comfortable receiving feedback as well as giving it to other people that it's there for you to grow and for you to develop. And, and I would agree with you that some feedback is definitely more valuable than others. There's only so many times you want to hear about your vocal variety or or things like that, right? It's like, you know, it's often you hear the same feedback kind of things over and over again in Toastmasters, which as you say is great delivery. Good feedback should be like a warm shower. It it is it is refreshing, but it also cleans you. Yeah, you know, I I, I was uh, privileged to be able to give uh, a very good speaker some feedback in a session a few weeks ago. And I do see it as a privilege to be able to give somebody feedback on it. And, and I, I really wanted to make the feedback valuable for her. So I gave her, so, uh, so I saw a few things that she could stretch herself with. And when I sent it to her, she was genuinely appreciative of this, like, yeah, I can definitely do those things and that's going to take me to another level. And I'm recognizing that. So that's what we want. That's what I want in my feedback. That's what everyone wants in their feedback. Uh, if we're giving people feedback, you know, give them feedback that encourages them and is going to say, yeah, here's what's great and here's what would be maybe a next level for you or where you can stretch yourself here or where I would, what I would like to see more of in, yeah. in your talks and presentations. And, and it can be a really powerful gift to, some, to give to someone. Exactly. I agree. I agree. And I think uh, Toastmasters, everything we learn at Toastmasters is, is end of the day, something we can use in our life, in our work, in our um, office, everything. I, I um, Evaluation is also not just giving evaluation, also receiving evaluation, because uh, you will also receive feedback from your bosses and stuff. Um, how you receive to- evaluation at Toastmasters also a uh, way you can receive feedback from your bosses and, and one thing I once told to uh, a lady in our club who was hesitant to take up a board role um, because like, oh, the, you know, the usual, I don't have time. I don't know if I can commit. And I said, um, doing something in new in Toastmasters is like painting your canvas. If it's bad, you can throw it away. But if it's good, you can use the same skills to paint your wall. Yeah. Great advice. I like that. I like the analogy. Very nice stuff. So you, you're a great uh, a great commercial for Toastmasters uh, and also for your own book and for what you teach as well. And uh, and I really enjoyed this conversation. If people want to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? I think um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and I have my own website. And um, I'm, I'm right here in Amsterdam. If you want to join me for a drink, always welcome. I have enough beers at my house. Well, next time in, I'm in Amsterdam, we'll, I'll definitely be taking you up on that. And uh, and I'm looking forward to your presentation on uh, on evaluations very soon for my club as well, uh, which we'll I'm pretty sure we'll be recording. So we may be able to share that with some people as well. Um, so we're definitely going to stay connected and carry on the conversation. But for, for everything you shared with us today, thank you. Uh, your book sounds amazing. I, I, I'm hungry to read it and, and know more about having my plan B. And uh, for everyone who wants to check that out and find out more 
about you and connect with you, uh, there will be links in the show notes. So please do connect with Savvy and uh, check out his book. And we'll be back with uh, with more episodes very soon. Uh, do check out the show. Do if you like it, make sure you subscribe to the show, and also that you uh, that you share it with people. If you enjoyed an episode, share it with your network as well. It's how we grow and get these empowering conversations into more people's hands and ears. So, uh, Savvy, anything you'd like to say before we close up today? I think, uh, for, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I think a week, few weeks back, we didn't even know each other. And now we, I've spoken to you also, emails, LinkedIn, and now in person so much that it's, it's amazing. That is the power of, I think, networking and connection. Uh, you, you really do a great show. And I think the way you make your guests comfortable to speak their mind out is amazing. So my compliments on having a lovely show. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And you make a great podcast guest as well. You should do more of it. Sorry, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, let's wrap things up there. We'll be back again very soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to like and subscribe. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. It does help other people to find the show. If you'd like to be a guest on Points of Change or you know someone who'd make a great guest, then please get in touch with the show. The best way to do that is by email john at presentinfluence.com. If you'd like to join us in our live audience when we record the shows, please get in touch with me on social media. We can give you all the links. We'd love to see you again on the next episode of Points of Change.